Philippians and chapter 3. <coughs> Philippians chapter 3 and read from verse 7. Paul, sa uh, Paul says here, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this is the bit we want. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Go over now to 1 Peter. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. And Peter says this. He says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's <coughs> sufferings. Now go back into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, and verse 5. <clears throat> and Paul says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, what those three verses have in common is that the Bible speaks about sharing the sufferings of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. What it means to share the sufferings of Jesus. And you will all be aware of the very, very famous passage in Isaiah 53, the prophecy in Isaiah of the death of Jesus, and that that prophecy is referred to as the suffering servant. And we're going to be on that a bit later on. So we've got this whole thing, what does it mean to share the suffering of Jesus. Well, first of all, we've got to understand what the Bible is meaning here by the suffering of Jesus. Because it is important to understand that when you get these phrases, I've shown you three examples from the Bible, but there are quite a few others as well. But that when you get this phrase, the sufferings of Jesus, the Bible is not, in fact, talking about his death on the cross. That was certainly suffering, but that was something else. Go to Hebrews, Hebrews in chapter 5, so we can see that the suffering of Jesus was far more than simply his death on the cross. And in Hebrews 5 and verse 7, Hebrews 5 and verse 7, and the writer says this, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now here, when it talks about Jesus being made perfect through what he suffers, 
is not referring there to sinless, you know, being sinless, because Jesus always was. The Greek word means maturity, or coming into wholeness or completeness. And what we see here is that Jesus, as he grew up through his life, in order to prepare him for his ministry, which didn't start until he was 30, in order to prepare him for that ministry, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So can you see that here the Bible is talking about the sufferings of Jesus which are quite apart from his death on the cross. And that what we're going to see is that through this suffering he went through, he was made obedient to God. He learned obedience. And that in the same way, we are called to share in that suffering, so that we too might learn obedience to God, and that we might be brought into maturity or completeness in Jesus. Now, what we're going to do then in this whole thing about sharing the sufferings of Jesus, we've got to do two things. Firstly, we've got to ascertain exactly what he suffered. I mean, what is this suffering of Jesus? We're going to ascertain that firstly. And then secondly, we're going to go on and we're going to ask ourselves the question, right, if that, will, if that is what Jesus suffered, then why exactly did he suffer it? Okay, so let's do the first one first. We're going to ask ourselves, what exactly were the sufferings of Jesus that the Bible is talking about here? Go to Isaiah 53, that very famous passage in Isaiah, the prophecy of the suffering servant that was fulfilled by Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, and verse 3, speaking of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, um, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now that prophecy tells us precisely what this suffering of Jesus was. And it was quite simply rejection. Jesus was personally rejected in a very, very comprehensive manner. And it speaks about we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. The sufferings of Jesus are that he was constantly rejected by people and that he was thought wrong even though he, above everybody else, was right. And we're going to see that the sufferings of Jesus is rejection by people. And we're going to see the comprehensiveness of it. Just how much Jesus was rejected. Go to John chapter 7. Because firstly, we're going to see that Jesus was rejected by his own family. John chapter 7 and verse 2. We read, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. 
So his brothers said to him, this is, you know, sort of Jesus' brothers, leave here and go to Judah that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no man works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Because here are his brothers saying, look Jesus, if you really think you're who you think you are, go out and you know, work a few miracles, do it openly, stop hiding, get a good audience as it were. And look what it says next. It says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus knew what it was to be rejected by his own family because of his faithfulness to God. And it was precisely for this reason that Jesus himself said that if any man loves father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. And the reason that Jesus said that was because he knew that for many, many people for them to become Christians, for them to really faithfully follow him, they would actually be rejected by their own earthly family. And therefore they had to settle in advance that Jesus was more important to them than even their own family was. Now can you see, Jesus suffered rejection by his own family because of who he was. And in precisely the same way, there are going to be times when believers experience the same thing. Now this tells us something else about Jesus, and it's tremendously important, because a lot of Christians, they seem to assume that because Jesus was himself sinless, that he therefore had some kind of perfect upbringing in his childhood. There is no reason to assume that whatsoever, in fact quite the contrary. You see, the thing was that with Jesus we get every indication, for instance, that his father died when he was quite young. Because after the story about Jesus going to the temple when he was 12 years old, you don't hear of Joseph anymore. I mean, Joseph obviously wasn't his literal father, but his adopted father. So there's every indication that from a very young age, for instance, Jesus lost his adopted dad, and as the eldest son would have been responsible for leading the family, you see. And the point is this, that whether it was through Joseph's death or just the fact that Jesus' upbringing was with sinners and therefore it wouldn't have been perfect, the point is, Jesus grew up to be someone who was emotionally absolutely balanced and perfect. Jesus had no emotional hang-ups whatsoever, even though his childhood would have been as, you know, iffy and butty as anybody else's. Now this tells us something tremendously important and it is this. Our emotional hang-ups and psychological foibles which go back to kind of trauma or difficulties we had when we were being brought up, those problems that we've got now are not the result of our background. They are not the result of emotional trauma. Because Jesus as a child went through emotional trauma, the same as we did, and yet he grew up to be perfectly balanced. And it tells us that our hang-ups come not from things that happened to us when we were younger. 
Our hang-ups come from the fact that when unfortunate things happened to us, we reacted to them sinfully. Now, can you see the importance of that? That emotional healing is only needed because the problem, the emotional problem that needs healing, was brought about not because of anything that happened to us, <clears throat> but because of our own sinful reaction to what happened to us. And the key to emotional healing is repentance. The key to emotional healing is that say you had a traumatic experience when you were younger, or maybe not so long ago, and that ever since that traumatic experience you've been troubled, something's been wrong with you, it's kind of zapped you emotionally. The key to healing is not just that God heals that emotion. The key to it is repentance for the sinful reaction. Because what damages us are our sinful reactions to trauma. Trauma cannot hurt you. Trauma didn't hurt Jesus. What hurts us emotionally is our sinful reaction. Can you see? Like resentments against people. Even though they did us wrong. You know, maybe Dad beat us up when we were kids. Well, I'll tell you, we don't know if Joseph beat Jesus up when he was a kid, probably not. But let's assume that Joseph did. Jesus would not have grown up with any problems. Because if we've got problems from things like that, it's because we resented back. It's the resentment, it's the unforgiveness, it's our sinful reaction to these things which causes emotional problems. Now, in the light of that, it must also become very obvious that we must be very, very careful indeed about this healing of the memory stuff. You know, this kind of, you know, going back into the past and, and I mean, it's tremendously dangerous. Now, I'm not saying that God does not want to heal us emotionally. He does. He desperately does and He, he will do it. But what we've got to be careful of are Christians trying to bring that end about by using very dubious techniques. And with these ministries of the healing of the memories, when you travel back in the power of the Spirit to your child, I've, I've even heard of people who have been taken back into their mother's womb. Now, what you've got to understand is that that kind of thing is more to do with a guy called Sigmund Freud than it is with the Bible. It is modern psychoanalytical theory. It's got nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. It's another classic example that the church incorporates into itself where the world is at. And so we come up with Christian versions of what the world is doing. And we have to be tremendously careful about this. I mean, for instance, uh, I mean, all, all you've got to do is read some of these books that teach this healing of the memories thing and that particular type of Christian counselling and uh, I can remember sort of reading an account of a woman who went to one of these emotional healers and uh, she had all kinds of problems in her life and uh, apparently a lot of them resulted from the fact that when she was a little girl she woke up and there was a burglar in a bedroom now I mean that, that frightened the life out of her and we can understand we can well understand that that, that did something to her and it caused her problems later on in life but what this emotional healer did is that they supposedly took her back to the event in the spirit. 
you see, you know, sort of supposed visions from God. And remember, Satan can give you visions. That's no problem for Satan to give you visions at all. That, that they went back and she had this vision of, of that there she was, a little girl in bed again, waking up and the thief, the burglar, was in the room. Now, what her healing came, because in this vision, what happened was Jesus came into the room. The burglar then got converted, said he was ever so sorry, went downstairs, and they all had a family meal together. Now, can you see that that is healing by fantasy? That has got nothing to do with Jesus healing you at all. And it may sound a bit, you know, extreme, but believe me, this is what goes on in the whole healing of the memories thing. And we've got to be very, very careful about it. Because the key to emotional healing isn't going back in the past and reliving things again. It's nothing to do with that at all. And the very phrase, healing of the memories, think about it. You can't have a memory healed. You can, however, face up to something that happened in the past and come to terms with it in the power of Jesus. That's completely different. But can you see, at some point, for emotional uh, problems that we have due to past trauma, rejection, or whatever it is, the point is, what caused us the problem was our sinful reaction to it. So the key to the healing isn't counselling techniques. The key to the healing of repent is repentance of our sinful reaction. Then the healing can come. But the main thing we've seen here is that Jesus experienced rejection from his family. Go to Luke chapter 4. Because we're going to see now that Jesus, he was rejected by his family, but he was also rejected by all his childhood mates. Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> and let's start from verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is after Jesus has started his ministry. He now goes home. He was brought up, all right, here in Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, all right? And in verse 20, he closed the book, gave it to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and wondered at his gracious words. Well, I mean, does this look, you know, is Jesus a hit in his hometown? Well, let's move on. Because if you go through, Jesus preaches them a particular sermon and it wasn't one that they wanted to hear. Go to verse 28. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, I want you to remember, the guys in these synagogues, among them would have been Jesus' childhood friends, all the kids he grew up with who are now grown up and living, you know, married and stuff like that, but also all his aunties and uncles. You know how it is when you're a kid, you know, neighbours end up auntie and uncle, don't they? They're like a real auntie and uncle. Well, here, would you, all Jesus' childhood mates, all his aunties and uncles, all the people he grew up with. And it says, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down headlong. They tried to kill him. Now that, I think you'll agree, is rejection. When people so hate you that they actually tried to kill Jesus, 
they rose up, he was at the front, they got out of their pews, they grabbed him, they carried him up to the top of a cliff in order to throw him off. It didn't work because his time hadn't come. But can you see, and the people doing this were his childhood friends and all his aunties and uncles, all the friends of his family. Can you get the idea, the picture of the kind of rejection that Jesus went through? This is the suffering the Bible talks about. Go to Matthew 15. Let's see how his disciples reacted. <clears throat> what you've got to understand is that now, by the time Jesus is in ministry, the twelve disciples are the only friends he's got. They're the only friends he's got left. Everyone else hates him now. And it's interesting to see that in actual fact, every now and then, the disciples had a very tactful little go at Jesus, trying to get him to calm down. Trying to get him to stop going quite so far in what he was saying. And in Matthew 15, verse 12, we have here that Jesus has just preached you know, a, a real kind of parable against the Pharisees. And the Pharisees really are mad about it. Now look what happens, alright? This is um, Matthew 15 and verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And the disciples are coming and they're saying, Oh Jesus, you've, you've upset them. Now you've probably heard it said, Christians don't upset people because it's not loving. You see, and this is what the disciples are trying. They're getting a bit worried, you see, because they know that not only are they the only friends that Jesus has got, but because they're with Jesus, they're the only friends they've got as well. And, and it's all starting to get a little bit close to the edge for them. So they think, we've got to calm Jesus down. And so they say, look, Jesus, can you just tone it down? The Pharisees were upset. Poor Pharisees. Ah, oh, all right. Now look what Jesus says. He says, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. Now, isn't that interesting? What happens here? That the disciples, they're saying, Jesus, calm down, calm down. You're, going, you're upsetting people, alright? And now Jesus compounds his sin of upsetting the Pharisees by being rude about them when the disciples try and tell them off. Because they say, Jesus, look, you know, go, go make it up to them. Can't You're offending them. I mean, they're nice, good church people, aren't they? And Jesus knew they were hypocrites. And so Jesus said, let them alone. They're blind guys. He says, don't worry about what they think. It's not important. <coughs> oh, that's, that's, you know, I wonder what we do with people in the kingdom who are like that today. Probably not very well. But can you see, the point is that here the disciples were all the time very subtly trying to put Jesus straight. <coughs> now, can you see the rejection in that? Jesus lived with that for the three and a half years that his disciples were with him. All the time they were trying to correct him, to try and calm him down a bit. And what eventually ended up with the disciples was quite simply this. Judas betrayed him. All the other disciples then fled in terror and left Jesus to get on with being killed on his own. Because they were too frightened to stand there and be there with him. And Peter, who was perhaps in a way closer to Jesus than any other of the disciples, Peter denied him three times. 
Peter lied about knowing Jesus because he was so frightened. Now can you see that that is rejection? We're seeing how comprehensively Jesus went through rejection. This is the sufferings of Jesus. This is what the Bible is talking about when it says that we too are to share in these sufferings. And in the same way that Jesus was even rejected by his disciples, so too there is a time that if you are really going to be faithful to God, then you are going to find yourself regrettably rejected by other Christians who are supposed to be standing with you. That you'll find that they turn and that they'll leave you and drop you right in it. Do you remember in one of his epistles, Paul was writing, he was talking about one time in one city he was and it got hairy, and he said, all deserted me. And you know what Paul's team did? They said, Paul, you got us into this, you can get out of it on your own, and they, they got out. Because Paul was too heavy for them. Paul didn't know when to shut up. Can you see? He had no diplomacy. And there's always a time to be really faithful to God when we might find that we are rejected by those even closest to us. There was something else, you see, because also Jesus completely lost his reputation. Now if you think about it, that is part of being rejected, when you lose your reputation. Let me just dip in and give you a little gleaning of some of the things that people call Jesus. They called him a glutton, they called him a drunkard, they told him he was mad, they called him a blasphemer, and then they topped it off by saying he was satanic. Now that, that is some of the things that Jesus was called. Now that is not good reputation stuff, is it? especially on the religious scene. And you'll find that when God deals with his people, that very often the last thing to go in a believer is his reputation. There are many, many Christians that God can get hold of their money and get hold of their relationships and get hold of all these other things, but the one thing that they're grabbing onto by their fingernails, desperately, is their reputation. And... I mean, I'll tell you, as long as your reputation is important to you, you're not going to go very far with Jesus, you see. Because by definition, where Jesus goes, you lose your reputation, just like he did. So if your reputation is important to you, you have to hang back. So you can't really go places with Jesus if you're in bondage to this whole terrible thing of needing people to think well of you. And the reason that this is so hard to be able to let reputation go, is that it requires two things. Firstly, it requires humility. And humility is one of the most important things that God wants to develop in us. Because humility doesn't mind what people think. So it requires humility, because your pride isn't hurt when people think badly of you. But the next thing it needs is for your security to be in Jesus. Jesus alone. Because if your security is in Jesus, all you're worried about is what he thinks. And if that's all you're worried about, it doesn't matter if other people don't agree. Can you see the way that we need to get free of, of this bondage, of, of, of needing other people to think well of us? Jesus didn't depend on his reputation. Jesus let his reputation go without a second thought. It didn't bother him in the slightest. Because he was dependent upon his father, not upon what people thought of him. 
And the Bible says that the fear of man is a snare in the Old Testament. And that is absolutely true. And you see, this thing about fear of man, it's not just physically. I'm not right, you might be frightened of someone because they can beat you up. But you see, it's more than just that, because often the root of fear of man is pride. Because what you're frightened of is that they might not think well of you. Can you see? Now, I call this ego bullying. And that what happens with ego bullying is this. You see, people, there are always people who like to keep you in line, aren't there? And what ego bullies do is that they get power over you because what they're saying is keep in line, don't step out of rank, don't rock the boat, don't overdo it because if you do, we will think badly of you. Can you see? That's ego bullying. Can you see? Because a bully in the playground says if you do this, I'm going to hit you. And being hit is so unpleasant that you let yourself be bullied so you don't get hit. Well, can you see that for many, many Christians, having people think bad of them is so unpleasant to them that probably some Christians would rather get beaten up than get a bad reputation. So therefore, they can be bullied by people because they're under their power because they won't dare do anything if they think that person is going to think badly of them. Can you see the subtlety of that? And you end up in absolute bondage to people saying, keep in line or we will think badly of you. And therefore, you have to be a good little boy. Because what's more important to you than Jesus is that these people think well of you. So they use it to get power over you, to keep you in your place so that the boat doesn't get rocked. And the way that we get immune to that, because Jesus was immune to it, the way that we get immune to that is quite simply by being Jesus-centred, not ego-centred. You see, the thing is that if someone threatens to beat your ego up, if you step out of line, because they'll think badly of you. And remember, this wanting people to think well of you, it's sheer pride, it's pure ego, you see. So the point is that if we're Jesus-centred rather than ego-centred, if someone threatens us and they say, look, if you step out of line, we're going to beat your ego up, we're going to think badly, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to hold our egos out and say, go ahead, do you want me to take the first swipe? Can you see? Because it doesn't matter. Because our security isn't in what people think. Our security is in what Jesus thinks. Our security is in what Jesus wants for us. So we need to, to get free. We need to get secure in Jesus so that people can't ego bully us. And then we are going to be free to do what Jesus wants. So therefore, we've seen, we've asked the question, if the Bible tells us, that we must share the sufferings of Jesus. We've asked, then what is that suffering of Jesus? And we've seen its rejection. And we've seen the comprehensive way in which Jesus was rejected because of his faithfulness to God. All right. So we know that the suffering of Jesus, in this sense of what the Bible is saying, is that Jesus was rejected. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So the second question is, right, that's what he suffered, but now, why did he suffer those things? We found out what he suffered, but, but why did he suffer? Now, obviously the answer is so we could be forgiven, but that isn't the angle that I'm coming at this from. I'm coming uh, from a completely different angle, angle, and the angle is quite simply this. Seeing as he was treated so badly, what on earth 
was it that he did that got people so upset? That's the question. Can you see why did he suffer? What was it about Jesus that got him all this suffering? If people rejected him so comprehensively, what on earth was he doing that made people reject him? Alright? And that is what we're going to find out. Why is it that Jesus suffered these things? Well, the first reason is this. He wouldn't compromise his message. Now, as we go through this, you're going to be presented with two ways to live your Christian life, alright? I leave it down to you which way you're going to live yours. I, I've decided which way I'm going to live mine. But you can be a popular Christian, or you can be one like Jesus. Rejected, alright? And firstly, Jesus rejected because he wouldn't compromise his message. See, Jesus had a habit. He just said things the way they were. You'll find that Jesus was very, very unflowery. The Jews weren't particularly flowery. All this flowery stuff is Western civilization. I mean, sort of, Jesus just said things the way they were. And if what he said got up people's noses, Jesus didn't consider that to be his problem. He considered that purely to be their problem. So if there was something that had to be said, Jesus said it. He spoke the truth simply the way it was. And one of the things that is very interesting about Jesus, and you don't often hear it, is this. We hear more about the lake of fire and eternal damnation from Jesus than anyone else in the Bible. Now how much hellfire preaching do we get today? You get none. Very little. Well you find it on the American circuit, but for some reason that generates money. I don't know why. Because they, they give it hell fire, and then, and then they take the collections and, and make their appeals for money, and millions comes in. You know, so perhaps they're frightening people into giving him money. But generally, can you see, how much hellfire preaching do we get? How often are people warned that if they don't become a Christian, that they're going to end up in the lake of fire? And the general approach is that that's not loving. You all, oh, you've got to be very careful about that. You might put people off. <coughs> so who in the Bible did it more than anyone else? Well, Jesus did. And the next time you want to hold someone back because they're giving it too much on the lake of fire, you ask yourself this question, would you have done it when Jesus was preaching? Because to be consistent, if you're going to do it to someone today, you'd have to do it to Jesus. Can you see, Jesus was not frightened to warn people about the lake of fire. And if you think about it, isn't it only an idiot who goes out and evangelizes by saying Jesus wants to save you, and doesn't tell them what Jesus wants to save them from. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? And a lot of our evangelism is saying, you can be saved, you can be saved, and people think, what, what from? Saved from the lake of fire. From an eternity burning in separation from God. Jesus was not, Jesus said things the way that they were. And do you remember... A few weeks ago, there was a, one of these disaster movies on TV. You know, the, these big, you know, they've usually got Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner in, all right? And this one was called Earthquake. And it was the standard format. The, you know, that you've got some disaster, you know, whether it's a giant dam collapsing or airplane, you know, pilots being shot or something like that. But this particular disaster was an earthquake. But you see, the pattern of these films is always the same. The plot is always similar. Because at sort of like um, 
you know, a research place where they had all like the seismographs and stuff like that, they got a warning of this massive earthquake that was going to come. And what happened was that the big <coughs> professor who ran this institute was away. And the bloke manning the equipment was, was like the new boy, you see. And he got these readings and he predicted this massive earthquake coming to the city, you see. But it was unprecedented. It was an incredible disaster. No one had ever seen readings like that, you see. So he declared it to his, his chiefs. And do you know what the chief said? Well, if we, my goodness, if we warn the city and cause a panic and we're wrong, they, they, they'll never trust us again. And so the warning didn't go out. Can you see the standard disaster movie thing? Because they were too frightened, they weren't willing to take the risk, because if people thought wrong of them. So in these disaster movies, no one gets any warning, and the disaster is that much worse. That is precisely what is happening eternally. Can you see, we hold back from telling people the disaster that's coming. We shouldn't. Jesus didn't. We shouldn't either. So Jesus was absolutely clear in his mind. He was happy to preach hellfire stuff, if you want to phrase it like that, ir irrespective of what people thought. And you see also, Jesus preached total commitment. Jesus, in his ministry, went for disciples. He did not go for converts. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to make converts, but we are commanded to make disciples. And a disciple, a disciple is a student. The best idea for a disciple in the Greek is an apprentice. It's someone who learns by giving their whole life to the master craftsman and learning <coughs> from him. That's what being a Christian is. That's what's be, what being a disciple is, as opposed to merely picking up converts. And it's very interesting that if you were to go through the scriptures, you'll find that evangelism, as done by Jesus and the early church, was vastly different to what we do today. Jesus walked up to people and he told them to follow him. Alright? No invitations. He walked up to people and he told them to follow him. And he expected them to drop everything they were doing and to get up and to follow him. And in Acts 70, 17 verse 30, Paul, when he was preaching at Athens, preached this. God commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's what we're to say to people. It's not a question of, oh, well, if, if, if you fancy it, come to Jesus. I mean, everyone out there, they are in rebellion against the Holy God. It is their bounden duty to repent. And we're not to go out like a load of wets, wets, kind of inviting people to some kind of optional dinner party. I mean, this is the word of eternal life. Where they are going to spend eternity depends on the message that you and I put across about Jesus. Can you see? But Jesus wasn't worried about being people put off, and neither should we. If people are put off by the true gospel, that's not our problem. That is their problem, and they will answer to God for that. We will not answer to God for other people. And isn't it vastly different from our evangelism techniques today? All the, the soft music, the low lights, the choir, 
droning softly in the background. An evangelist who's been trained in techniques as much as he's been trained in anything else. And he starts to get people's hand up. And he gets them happy with their hands up. They feel safe. So it's the next... Well, I'd just like you to stand up. And I'll tell you, you can manipulate people like that no problem. I could do that if I wanted. I just don't want to. That means nothing. The grace of God is that people do get genuinely converted through that. But for heaven's sake, can you see how different the evangelism of the early church was? It's not this sloppy, uh, compromised, lovey-dovey stuff that we're doing today in the West. It was going out and commanding people to submit to Jesus and to get saved. And I mean, for heaven's sake, we are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. That is what the church is. The church of Jesus Christ is the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. But we are not, I repeat, not its public relations officers. Can you see the difference? The church today is busy doing a PR job for Christianity. We don't want to do a PR job. And the reason is that if you go into PR normally, and this is what advertising is all about, it's making a product that's not quite up to scratch sound good. Well, I'll tell you, Jesus is up to scratch. He doesn't need any embellishment from me at all. We don't have to make the gospel nice because the gospel is Jesus and he's good enough. And in fact, can you see, when we try and make it nicer, that's blasphemy. It's saying that Jesus isn't nice enough or Jesus isn't enough the way he is. No, Jesus, he said things the way they were. He wouldn't compromise on the message that he preached. Whereas today, what we tend to do is that we get up, whether it's before the world in evangelism or whether it's before each other in our attempts at unity, and we say, we thump the Bible, we say, this is what we believe, and if you don't like it, well, we'll come up with something you do. <laughs> and that's what the church is doing today. Can you see? It's hardly, it's hardly surprising that society is laughing at us. But can you see? Jesus would not compromise his message, therefore he was rejected. But there was something else as well. Because Jesus pleased God, before men. All these things, in fact, are tied up. But go to John 12. John 12. Verse 42. And we read this. <clears throat> Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So that here, we're hearing that there were people in the authorities, they believed in Jesus, they got saved. They got saved. But as we're going to see, these, these guys became converts, not disciples, because look, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now can you see how awful that is? that these guys, they were too cowardly to confess Jesus because they were frightened of losing the praise of men. Now, can you see that a very large part of cowardice is pride? Can you see that? Because we fear having people think badly of us. 
because our security is in people thinking well of us. And we need people to bolster us. We need everyone to believe that we're a really super-duper chap. Can you see the bondage that that is? And so, therefore, we're back to the ego bullying. But Jesus couldn't be ego-bullied because his security didn't lie in people thinking well of him anyway. He was immune against people's opinions about him. Now, can you see that if you're like that, can you see the trouble that's going to get you into? Because if you're like that, you cannot be controlled and you cannot be contained. Because remember, the weapon is, if you step out a line, we will think badly of you. This is one of the major ways that, that, that fellowships that aren't right with God shut their prophets up. Because they say, if, if you speak out a turn, if you say something that they don't want to hear, can you see the pressure comes on? Uh, you're a rebel. You're, you're hearing from the depth. You're, you're a troublemaker. Well, that's worse than blasphemy against the Spirit in some churches, I'll tell you. Can you see, and they start ego-bullying you. When you get someone who's secure in Jesus and thinks more of what Jesus thinks of them than what other people, you can't bully them. And that is such a threat to people. Because there's no way you can shut them up. Therefore, if you can't shut them up, you've got to get rid of them somehow. So, are we controlled? And we've got to ask ourselves this by people's opinions of us or are we controlled by what Jesus wants us to do now there was another thing as well because by virtue of Jesus refusing to compromise and by virtue of the fact that he pleased God before men he was therefore a threat to established religion we're coming on to the biggies now because he was a threat to established religion and also a threat to those of God's people who are nice and cosy in their sins and their unfaithfulness. And in fact, the main opposition that Jesus had was from this very area. It was from the religious status quo of his day. And Jesus' response to their opposition was that he opposed them even more strongly than they opposed him. Jesus spoke out more vehemently against the religion of his day and the Pharisees and the hypocrites. He spoke out more vehemently against them than anybody else. And the reason was this. He stood against it so strongly to make sure that ordinary people wouldn't mistake it for the real thing. That is the danger of religion. People mistake it for the real thing. I will go further. That is the danger of churches as we have them today. People are mistaking established Christianity for real Christianity. That is why there must be such a strong stand against it. Because people are still being taken in. Can you see? If you get taken in by the counterfeit, you think you've got reality. 
If you think you've got reality, you'll never go after it. And if you never go after reality, you'll never get it. Can you see how subtle it is? And one last thing, and this is really the heart of the matter. This, finally, is why Jesus was rejected. And it was because he upheld God's honour. He upheld God's honour. In Romans 3, verse 4, Paul says this, Let God be true, and every man a liar. I'll say that again, because it's what the Bible says. Let God be true, and every man a liar. Now, I want you to see the starkness of this issue, the black and white of it. And it's quite simply this. If people disagree with what the Bible says, either God has got it wrong or they have got it wrong. Therefore, Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. Can you see, Paul was saying, let's be absolutely clear, if you disagree with God, you are wrong and there is no two ways about it. Can you see that this was precisely Satan's attack on Eve? And it's been his attack ever since. Because Satan tried, he succeeded in convincing Eve that God had lied to her. Can you see that? The nature of Satan's temptation of Eve was that he insinuated and got her to believe that God had lied to her about something. And that is what is still going on today. This, above everything else, is the issue that has got to be settled once and for all in the so-called Christian church in our country. Let me think about it. I hope we would stand up for the honour of our wives pretty readily. Don't you agree? If someone smeared the honour of your wife, you'd want to be in there, wouldn't you? I hope you would. The same as you wives, you would want to protect your husband's honour if his name was being unduly besmirched. But I ask you this, do we feel the same about the Lord when his name is besmirched? You see, the thing is about honour is that our honour, and we accept this as being British, don't we? is that your honour is tied up in your word being true. You see, we say, my word is my bond. And it's like, in the stiff upper lip officer and a gentleman type approach in, you know, sort of like out in the Indian Raj and that, the British officers. I mean, there were two things that were unforgivable. There were two things that brought your whole infantry or whatever it was, your whole company into disrepute. One was cowardice and the other was telling a lie. Honour stood on those two things in the army. Bravery and truthfulness. Now the point is that if people's honour are tied up with their word, we come down to this. If you do not believe the Bible fully, you are therefore calling God's word and therefore his honour into question. Can you see what I'm saying? 
that if we do not believe and submit to the Bible fully, we are calling God's word, because that's what the Bible is, and therefore God's honour into question. Now Jesus met this in his ministry on two levels. And believe me, there is nothing new under the sun, as I'm going to show you. And the first level he met it on were the Sadducees. Alright, the Sadducees. Now the thing about the Sadducees is that they were the modernists. Alright, they were the bishops of Durham. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in an afterlife. Alright, they didn't believe directly in the supernatural. Alright, now this is exactly where the Bishop of Durham and his ilk are. So Jesus, and what's so fascinating, is that we're saying, what are we supposed to say to these guys if we ever meet them? Well, what did Jesus say to them? Because he met them, alright, and it's very, very interesting. You see, these guys, what they did is that they emptied the Bible of its content, its truth, through intellectual scepticism. Their approach was, how can intelligent people be expected to believe this? Now, what we've got to ask ourselves is this. Did Jesus respect their intellectual stance? Did Jesus admire the intellectual and theological odyssey they were on? Was he in awe of their being willing to struggle with the intellectual issues of the day, no matter how unsettling it was to faith? Did he admire it? No, he didn't. He rebuked them. And in Matthew 22, verse 29, this is what he said to the Pharisees, and this is what needs saying to the people in the church today who are modernists. Jesus said, you are wrong. Right? Is this too black and white for people? He said, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, it's been fascinating at the moment. As you know, the Lambeth Conference is on. Uh, you know, our, our trusty state church. And therefore, it's getting a lot of TV coverage. And on Sunday nights, uh, for the last two Sundays, and the third one is next Sunday, they've had a program on Sunday nights called the Lambeth Walk. And that what happens is that each Sunday night, for 50 minutes, they're getting bishops together, you know, a selection of six or seven, of the bishops together, just talking through various of the subjects that are coming up at the Lambeth Conference. Now, Belinda and I have watched two of them, we videoed them, so we have watched a uh, hundred minutes, uh, an, an hour and forty minutes so far, of bishops talking about all the issues being brought up at the Lambeth Conference. Now, what I want to say is this, and it is true, thus far the word Bible has not been mentioned on those programs. I am not kidding. The word Bible has not been mentioned. It's not been referred to yet. But what is so sickening is this. The bishop who is chairing the program, acting as the chairman of, you know, the program, is himself a genuine born-again Bible-believing Christian. 
as are one or two of the odd bishops who get through. But the question is, is this, those genuine believers, rather than like Jesus saying, look, you're wrong, they're sucking up to them. They're doing a PR job. And in fact, these Bible-believing bishops are saying of people like the Bishop of Durham and these men who are utter false prophets, what they're saying are things like, well, the wonderful thing about the Anglican Church is, is, is the wealth of doctrine we can embrace and still be in unity. Now, this, this is what they're saying. And rather than rebuking them, they're sucking up to them. And can you see the genuine Christians are being deceived they're being deceived. That's why all this, well, the Lord wants us to stay in there, to retrieve it. It's absolute rubbish. All you've got to do is to look at what's happening to the genuine Christians still in. They are being deceived. They're not cleaning up the, the rest. They are being dragged down to the same level of compromise that all the modernists are at. Now, can you see how crazy it is? The whole issue is the truth of God's word. The Sadducees, they were like the modernists, the bishops of Durham, the John Habgoods, um, and to a very large extent, Runcie himself. They were of that ilk, alright, the modernists, the compromisers, didn't matter what you believed at all. But you see, the second level that Jesus met this on was with the Pharisees. Now, but you see, the Pharisees, they were the Bible believers. The Pharisees believed the Old Testament. They didn't doubt a word of it. All right. But you see, the Pharisees had also emptied the Bible of its truth. But they had done so even more subtly. You see, the thing is, if the modernists, if it's true of the modernists, and it is, that they believe less than the Bible teaches... The problem with the Pharisees and many, many Bible-believing Christians today is that they, and this is just as dangerous, in fact it's more dangerous, is that they empty the Bible of its truth by believing more than the Bible teaches. Can you see the difference? The moderns believe less than the Bible teaches. But today, Christians in the churches, they believe more than the Bible teaches. And both are equally as dangerous, you see. Because what had happened at the time of Jesus is that the, the, the Pharisees had come up, they believed the Old Testament, but they added to it. And they had devised many, many extra-biblical beliefs and practices, which they then made as binding as the Word of God. So that if you disobeyed one of their things, alright, one of their rules, okay, therefore they considered that as being as serious as actually disobeying what the Bible said. So can you see, they emptied the Bible of its truth, they, they, they kind of cancelled out the power of God in the Bible, not by believing too little of it, like the modernists or the Sadducees, but by believing more than the Bible actually required of them. And you see, the thing about the Bible, because it is God's word and because it's the truth, the balance is absolutely right. Now, do you realise that there are many, many trees that if you chop certain branches off, they might have been standing there for hundreds of years. If you go at it on a chainsaw, do you know you can knock that tree over by upsetting the equilibrium of branches? 
because the tree has grown with symmetry. They're geotropic. They respond to gravity. So that a tree, as it grows and spreads out, it balances itself so it keeps steady. The word of God is a tree. Every branch is just right. Now, if you chop a load of branches off, do you know what's going to happen? The tree's either going to die or fall over if you chop them all off one side. But certainly the tree will die. That's what the modernists have done. All right? But if you, if you graft in a load of branches that the tree itself didn't grow, it'll topple over. You, you put the balance out. And you see, the thing is that with the Bible, to subtract from it or add to it is equally wrong. It's equally dangerous, and both are satanic deceptions. It's very, very important to, to see this. Go to Matthew 15, because we've heard what Jesus said to the modernists, you're wrong, all right, you know neither you know, the scriptures nor the power of God, but what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? And therefore, what is Jesus saying to Bible-believing Christianity in our country today? Matthew 15 and verse 7 you hypocrites, this is not a good start, <laughs> you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now then, just go back into verse 3. He says, so he's saying to them, that they're obeying their traditions. And in so doing, it's actually making them disobey God's word. And we saw that the modernists empty the Bible of its truth by believing too little. Now look at verse 3. Why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now can you see that what's happening here is that there's a direct conflict. If you add to the Bible obedience to what you've added is going to mean disobedience to what is there. So verse 6, for, your, for the sake of your tradition you have made void, emptied, the word of God. That's what Bible believers have done in this country today. Let me give you some examples. We're talking about when Christians add to the Bible and do things and believe things which the Bible itself doesn't teach. I'll just throw out a few. Ordaining clergy, a priesthood. The Bible does not teach that. Alright? It's bondage. It's doctrine of demons. Infant baptism. Confirmation. Can you see what happens? Because if you do those things, you're not doing what the Bible says you ought to do. Someone was saying to me a little while ago, they, they wanted to get baptised, they went to the leader of their church, who said he couldn't baptise them, but he could confirm them. So what's happened? That guy has not obeyed the Bible. Can you see? He's been prevented from being in obedience to the Bible by the traditions of Christians, which aren't actually from the Bible. Church membership, signing on the dotted line, tithing, let's have your 10% brother. All these things, they're not what the Bible teaches, they are add-ons 
they are traditions which Christians have imposed on the Bible. Can you see, Jesus spoke against that equally as he spoke against the modernists and the Bishop of Durham's etc. Because both empty the word of God and its truth, of, of its truth and power as much as the other. So in that sense, our concern isn't just to say, oh how dreadful that there are modernists in the church. Because I'll tell you, the only reason that the modernists now run the established churches is because a hundred years ago, the genuine Christians, when these men who were modernists started to come before to be ordained into the priesthood, do you know what happened? The genuine Bible-believing Christians didn't obey the teaching of the Bible that says they should have kicked them out of the church altogether. Not only should they have not allowed them to be leaders, they should have put them out of the church. They were heretics. Bible-believing Christians did not obey what the Bible said. They let them in, and now the church is being run by them. Can you see? Finally, the problem isn't the modernists. It's, it's us lot. It's us Bible-believing Christians who get all tied up with traditions and get deceived by Satan. Now, because Jesus spoke against all these things, can you see that, therefore, he was not a popular guy? And that, therefore he was comprehensively rejected. Now what we can do now is we can define exactly why it was that Jesus suffered in the way that he did. And it's this. The suffering of Jesus, the rejection, despised and rejected by men, that suffering was due to Satan and evil spirits attacking him through other people's unacknowledged and unconfessed sins. Can you see that? Because if there's undealt with sin in our lives, we can become a channel for Satan. So Satan wanted to attack Jesus. Therefore, people who weren't right with God and weren't willing to confess their sins and be honest, they became, if you like, an open door. Satan piled in and could manipulate them. He found a channel in these people. So what happened was, Satan attacked Jesus via other people's undealt with and unconfessed and unacknowledged sin. But, and here's the beauty, Romans 8.28, everything works together for good. Because God is using that process in order for the sin in those people to come to light, to be exposed for what it was, therefore giving them a chance to see their sin in action and therefore to repent. Can you see what I'm saying there? So that as these people rejected Jesus, as they became channels for Satan to attack through them, their, their rejection was so silly, it was so over the top, it was so obviously wrong, that in God's grace they were having a chance to see their own sin in action because remember our hearts are deceitful our heart deceives us about our sin now when you see it clearly exposed then you have a chance to repent can you see therefore what's happening Satan attacks Jesus via the lives of people who aren't right with God. In the process, the people who aren't right with God, because they're acting now like such a bunch of plonkers and going so far, they have the chance to look at themselves and say, 
what what am I doing? And therefore, the Spirit convicts them, and they are given the opportunity to realise their sin and to repent. Now then, therefore, for us to share the suffering of Jesus means this. It is when we suffer rejection because of the unacknowledged sin of other people. Can you see that? To share the suffering of Jesus is when you become a channel for people who aren't right with God to be convicted. Satan therefore attacks you, rejects you through those people. Therefore you are rejected, you suffer, but not as a result of your own sin, but because of the result of the sin of other people. Now can you see that? Suffering we do as a result of our own sin, and boy we all do a bit, fair bit of that, don't we? Is, is something else completely. It's totally different. We are talking about when we suffer as a result of other people's sins. You mustn't confuse the two. When you suffer because of your own sinfulness, that's God's discipline. That's chastisement. All right, That's totally different. But it's when you suffer rejection as a result of the undealt with sins in other people's lives with whom you have to do. So then, to share the suffering of Jesus is when your faithfulness to Jesus becomes the catalyst whereby other people are convicted of sin. And this process happens via Satan using the channel in their lives, attacking you, and therefore their sin is laid bare. But in the process, you become the scapegoat. You become the whipping post. Can you see? It's so that God can convict them of their sin. And Ephesians 5 verse 11, Paul says this, he said, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now can you see? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what sharing the suffering of Jesus is all about. So two things occur. Other people's sins are exposed because God's convicting power does that through you. So that's good. But secondly, when that happens, as a result we are rejected, we then get a marvellous chance to grow in the Lord and die to ourselves when Satan attacks us. Isn't that brilliant? Can you see? Because when you're rejected and people are treading your name in the mud, do you know what? That's ever so good for us. It really is. Because it means that you'll never let... Your ego will not remain whole long enough for you to treasure it. It will be in a constant state of being beaten up by people. Now can you see, that's the best way for us to be humbled. I mean, the very best way to be humbled is for everyone to think you're, you're, you're awful. That's humbling. But how on earth are we going to learn humility when everyone thinks we're fantastic? Do you remember what Jesus says, Woe to you when all men think well of you. And it's precisely for this reason. So it's great. Sin is exposed in others. That's terrific. But you see, as the Satan attacks us through them, 
by which the sin is exposed. We are humbled into the dust and we really do have to hang on to Jesus. And then we find our security in him because there's nothing else left to put your security in. It's all been trampled in the dust, hasn't it? You see? Even a lot of your friends, because they don't want to know you now. You're a troublemaker. Okay? Now, can you see the beauty of it? God wastes nothing. What a perfect economical process that God here is working. So then, can you see, sin needs to be exposed. And in the same way that God exposed it through Jesus, when Jesus was here in the flesh, we are the body of Christ. Jesus wants to expose it now through us. But I want to put a qualification here. And this is tremendously important. Because, of course, there's a lot of exposing of evil going on today from Christians. Now, what's so subtle is this. A lot of the things being exposed are evil, and they need to be exposed. Abortion, pornography, all these things, tremendously important. But the point I must raise is this. I find that I can have very little respect for Christians who are out there standing against the sin of society, exposing the evil of the world in society very loudly, very verbally, very bravely, whilst at the same time turning a very convenient and diplomatic blind eye to the evil in their own so-called churches. Can you see the point of that? This is tremendously important. Over the last year or so, I mean, it's like, for instance, I'll give you an example. With a lot of the loony left councils, that through them, Satan is trying to propagate the idea that the gay lifestyle is a genuine alternative. And this is Satan trying to propagate a wrong idea, all right? But you see, what's been happening is that there have been lots and lots of Christians out in the front line protesting that these counsellors, these loony left councils, are propagating homosexuality or lesbianism as a good lifestyle. And these Christians are out there, and they're battling against it, they're exposing it for the evil that it is. Now then, here's the point. A lot of them go to Anglican churches, and a lot of them go to Methodist churches. It's interesting, a few weeks ago, the Methodists had their yearly conference. Something very important happened at that Methodist conference. It didn't get a lot of coverage because the media's locked onto the C of E, because the C of E is the biggie, obviously. But some time ago, there was a man, an Anglican, who put himself forward for the priesthood. Now, he is a practicing homosexual. He's totally unrepentant. He thinks it's good. He is a practicing homosexual. He put himself forward for the Anglican priesthood. But what happened was that his particular bishop refused to ordain him because of that. Because not all the bishops are for it. And of course, any one bishop has supremacy on his patch. So what happened was, this bishop said, no, I'm not doing it. Therefore, that bloke could never become an Anglican priest, because you can't go to a different area and try again with a more lenient bishop. But what happened was, the Methodist Conference gave him a post at one of their... Bible colleges. Can you see? 
they gave him a post at one of their theological colleges to speak their support for him as a brother in Christ. So therefore, these Christians out there standing against the loony left councils because of the, 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 the gay rights thing, for example, a lot of them are, for instance, Anglicans and Methodists. I want to say this. They are starting at the wrong place. Leave those loony left councils alone and start picketing your bishops and your clergy. Can you see? Stop writing to MPs. Write to the bishops. Can you see how ridiculous it is for Christians to be seen standing against an evil in society when that evil is now accepted within the so-called Christian church? Can you see there is a, a, a tremendously important principle here? And can you not see that we must clean up the church's act before we even dare think that we can have the credibility and the audacity to go out and to start cleaning up society. Can you see why society is laughing at us? What is our society supposed to think of Christians, alright, in the front of the battle against gay rights and all this sort of stuff, when the church is ordaining unrepentant homosexual ministers. Can you see, society looks on and they can see nothing but the hypocrisy, or more likely the joke of it. They think we're a joke. Can you see why there must be a total disassociation from churches that are into that? Because unless the true church emerges, how is anyone going to know that that church out there is the counterfeit one? Can you, you know, do you remember what I said? Jesus spoke against Phariseeism and the religiosity of the day so strongly because he didn't want the ordinary man in the street to think it was the real thing, to mistake it for the real thing. And we must not want people to look at Anglicanism, Methodism, Baptismism, you know, Baptism, all this. We've got to show them an alternative so that they can see that all that out there they mustn't mistake it for the real thing. It's not the real thing, it's a counterfeit. The tragedy is that there are so many genuine Christians in it, still procreating it, still helping it along. Can you see the importance of this? The way that we've got to be willing to stand with Jesus. Now, I don't want anyone to go away thinking that I'm saying that this gives us carte blanche, a kind of a blank check, an excuse to go out there and expose sin wherever we see it and, and to just become thoroughgoing troublemakers. I'm, I'm not talking about that. And, and, and I mean, all of you who know me know that I'm not saying that, but I'm overemphasising this point because at least some people will listen to the tape who don't know me, you see. And obviously it's not a question of going out there and becoming troublemakers. In Romans 12:18, Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. I mean, I go. I, I love the quiet life, believe me. I go along with that 100%. But do notice that, uh, if possible, so far as it depends upon you. It's a very heavily qualified statement. And all I'm saying is that there is going to eventually come the time in certain circumstances where God says, speak out speak out and that we have got to be willing you see you've got to wear the cap that fits
for most of us, are we likely to be too outspoken, or are we likely to be quiet as church mouse? I mean, that the very phrase, quiet as a church mouse, it says something about what society thinks about us. Can you see, we are not in danger of becoming too outspoken, all right? So, so, so let's not, the, oh, 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 we think we ought to be careful here, Beresford, because I mean, if you're going to be careful here, you'll never do it. None of us will ever do it. We need a little bit of chivying up on the other extreme. We need greater boldness to stand with Jesus. But can you see, if you're going to do it, you must first of all have it very clear in your mind and heart that you are quite willing to share the sufferings of Jesus. Because the price you're going to pay is rejection and being ostracized. It is as simple as that. And you see, also, it's not only a question of sin being exposed, because you actually point it out. I mean, we don't want to start going, Oi, did you know you've got this sin in your life? That's not what we're talking about. But it's extraordinary. But, but I've, I've found in my own life that in actual fact, I, I see people convicted of sin in my presence. Sometimes I've walked into a room where people do not know me and they have instantly hated me. Instantly. Can you see? Now isn't that wonderful if, 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 we're, if we're willing to pay the price? Wouldn't it be lovely for God to have us, you know, little mobile convictors of sin, wandering around all the time? Not because you're saying, oh, you're sinful, you're sinful, but in the presence of Jesus' holiness, it just happens. They think, wow. God's here, and that gets a little bit threatening. And you see, the fact that they're not willing to repent bears out in the fact that they go for you. They have to try and discredit you, you see. Make out your troublemaker. That's why the Jews eventually said Jesus was of the devil. If you can convince yourself that someone's of the devil, you don't have to listen to what they say, do you? So you get out of that one nicely. But we've got to decide, we've got to be willing to share the sufferings of Jesus. Just go to Hebrews. We're, we're right near the end now, but just go to the letter to the Hebrews. Some lovely verses. Well, depends, depends what way you look at it. I, I think these are lovely verses. And the writer says this, Hebrews 13, verse 12. I think this is beautiful. He says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Because Jesus was crucified on a rubbish tip outside of the holy city, outside of Jerusalem. And he says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing abuse for him. Now, I do want you to understand this very, very clearly. The writer... And remember, Jesus stood against the religious authorities of his day. They were Judaism. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to Christians who were Jews about that same Judaism, about that same religious system. And isn't it interesting that he says that Jesus, that we must go forth to him outside the camp. I will tell you, Jesus is not in this country's religious system. I'm sorry, he's not in it. You can think he is, you can sing your hymns, you can listen to all the sermons. Jesus is not in that. And the Bible teaches us that quite clearly. You must go outside of that 
to get to Jesus, you see. But what's so lovely is that he's saying, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing abuse for him. Now, in the Old Testament, who were the people who were outside the camp all the time? I'll tell you, they were lepers. Because if they weren't kept outside the camp, everyone will get leprosy and die. So, in the Old Testament, the lepers were outside the camp. The writer to the Hebrews says, let us go outside the camp to Jesus, bearing abuse for him. It really boils down to this. If you really follow Jesus, then don't be surprised to find that people, including other believers who aren't right with God, treat you like a leper. Because they will treat you like a leper. Because they don't want to be contaminated with your faithfulness. I'll tell you, the institutional church does not want to be contaminated with what the Bible teaches. If it did, it wouldn't be practicing things that are against what the Bible teaches. Can you see? They've made their choice. Now, you don't want to be contaminated by a leper. And the religious institutions don't want to be contaminated by people who are faithful to Jesus. They're quite happy with believers who are compromisers. They're quite happy with that. Turn a blind eye to the evil in there. But they don't want to be contaminated by people like us. Therefore, they're going to treat us like lepers. We've just got to expect it. It's sharing the sufferings of Jesus. Just go to Acts 13. We're right at the end now. But I just want to show you something again. And I, I think that's lovely. Don't you, going outside the camp to Jesus? You know, I mean, there's, there's all these people in there trying to renew the church, and Jesus is outside. He must, you know, whistling away to himself, wondering when they're going to get the message that he's not there. And then, of course, we can go outside the camp, and we can get on with letting Jesus build his church. But it's, uh, you know, I, I just think that's great. But there's something else that's lovely. Acts 13, verse 49. Verse 49, and it's, it's just the attitude of the early church we want to get here. But the, uh, 49, uh, and the word of the Lord spread throughout all the region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Well, what's this? This is showing the sufferings of Jesus. Here, it's at the hands of unbelievers. Sometimes it can be at the hand of genuine Christians who aren't right with God. But listen to this. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now what I want you to see here is this. That it says that they're preaching the gospel, they get persecuted, they're driven out, treated like lepers, really given a hard time. Now normally you would think it would say, but... But, nevertheless, they were filled with the Spirit and with joy. It doesn't say that. It says, and the disciples were filled with joy. Because it was all part of the process. It wasn't, oh, oh, they're persecuting us. But, but we better, you know, we must be joyful in the Lord. There's something wrong if they're not. That's the point. That's the point. It's those of you with a peaceful Christian life who are in danger here. It's those of you who Satan's leaving alone. What's wrong with you? That's the question. So if you're sailing through your Christian life, 
Well, I mean, there, you know, there's something, just, just ask the Lord what's wrong. I'll tell you. I mean, if you're really faithful to Jesus, you're going to bless people or you're going to make them mad, but you won't find anyone sitting in the middle. It doesn't work like that. When Charles Wesley was training people who thought that they were called to preach and that, he'd, he'd give them a bit of training and he'd send them out on a mission. So he'd have these young men who came and they said, we think God wants us to be preachers, evangelists. So he'd send them out. And when they came back from the end of their preaching tour, John Wesley would ask two questions. Did anyone get saved? Did anyone get mad? And if the answer to either of them was no, he said, sorry, you're not anointed. Because where God's anointing is, there'll be blessing or people will hate you. It's as simple as that. And if people don't, well, one's got to ask, where's the anointing? So can you see, rejoice in sharing the sufferings of Jesus. It's a privilege. I mean, not a pain, not something we sort of, oh, I'm bearing the suffering. This is a joy. I mean, for heaven's sake, if they hated Jesus, as Jesus said, by what worse names will they call his, ser his servants? If, if they call the, the son Beelzebub, that's what Jesus said, by what worse names are they going to call you? So then, to bear, to share the sufferings of Jesus, all right, it's not always very nice, but can you see it's part of the process whereby God is cleaning up his people and is going to convict the world. And even though it's a bit nasty when all the sin is flying and it, it hits the fan, as they say, because it will, there's no question, people will sling mud. Christians will sling mud. They will be threatened. They've got to get rid of you. They've got to, to do a, a character crucifixion on you because they can't afford to believe what you're saying. So they've got to discredit you. So whereas that that's not very nice, be glad, rejoice, because it's part of the process whereby God is actually giving them the chance to repent. I know that they don't realise it, but we're doing them a favour. Although I, I know they don't realise it. But just one last thing as well, because I don't want to give you the impression that we are only the ones who are the objects, the subjects of the attack. Be very, very careful and all the time keep your eye open for anyone Satan's attacking through you. And I have to keep my eyes open for anyone Satan's attacking through me. Because if sharing the suffering of Jesus is suffering for other people's sins, can you see how right with God we've got to stay towards other people? Or we might end up actually the channel for Satan attacking them. So let's not think this is all one way. We are potentially as dangerous as anybody else out there. But safety is obviously by remaining faithful to Jesus and by living in close fellowship with him and all the time confessing our sins and keeping, as it were, short accounts for God. So there you are, sharing the sufferings of Jesus. I won't say it's fun, but it's a great blessing. It really is, because it brings you so close to Jesus. He's never closer to you than when you are sharing his suffering. And I think that that is absolutely marvellous.